Always thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose, helps, whose support helps uh, make these lectures possible. And today we're very fortunate to have with us Todd Culbertson, whose name you might recognize. He's the editorial page editor of the Richmond Times-Dispatch, and Todd will introduce today's speaker. So, Todd? Thank you, Paul. I'm glad to be here on behalf of the Times-Dispatch to introduce today's program. Uh, I am the editorial page editor. I'm in my 36th year on the job, so I'm going to invoke my status as an editor and as a dinosaur uh, to depart from the text for a second. One of the great uh, virtues of or signs of excellent expository writing is when the reader can read an entry, read a book, read an essay, and say to himself, hmm, this is what I've been thinking but have been unable to put into my own words. When I read today's speaker's writings on the Constitution, on law, I'm not a lawyer, not, I say, yeah, you know, I've been thinking that and I just couldn't explain it. And that's so uh, I just want to thank uh, Judge Wilkinson uh, for his contributions for, to, for whatever clarity I have probably comes through him which means if you see an editorial and you don't happen to like it, you know whom to blame. Uh, anyway, American constitutional law has undergone a transformation. Issues once left to, people, to the people increasingly have become the province of the courts. Subjects as diverse as abortion rights, firearms regulation, and healthcare reform are increasingly the domain of judges. What sparked this development? Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson III argues that America's most brilliant legal minds have launched a set of cosmic constitutional theories that, for all their value, are undermining self-governance. The loser in all the theological fireworks is the old and honorable tradition of judicial restraint, which has given way to a competing schools of liberal and conservative activism, living constitutionalism, originalism, process theory, or the supposedly anti-theoretical creed of pragmatism. Wilkinson calls for a plainer, self-disciplined commitment to judicial restraint and democratic governance, a course that may be impossible as long as the cosmic constitutionalists continue to, do to, do to dominate legal thought. It's a special privilege to introduce today's speaker, Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson, Today's speaker, Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson, is an old and dear friend of the Virginia Historical Society. For more than 20 years, the VHS has benefited from the generosity of his family in making possible the J. Harvey Wilkinson Jr. lectures named in honor of Judge Wilkinson's father. The Society has brought world-class speakers to Richmond through this program, but I doubt that any of them can match the intellectual breadth and substance of today's speaker. I think doubt actually uh, uh, underestimates the thing is I know uh, that none can match uh, Jay's intellectual heft. Judge Wilkinson, Jay to his friends, was born in New York City, but he's a Virginian as, as, uh, he is as a Virginian as any native. He first burst upon the literary scene only a year after graduating from Yale with the publication of his first book, Harry Bird and the Changing Face of Virginia Politics. I was hired in December 1976 to come to the Richmond News Leader as an editorial writer. 
and the Harry Bird and the Changing Face of Virginia Politics was the first book I read about the, the political atmosphere of the state that I was coming to. I'm actually from California, which is probably worse than New York, so. <laughs> that was in 1969. Jay then went on to study law at UVA and clerked for Justice Lewis Powell, another famous Virginian. He taught law at UVA, was editorial page editor of the Norfolk Virginian Pilot, and served as Deputy Assistant U.S. Attorney General in the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. In 1984, President Ronald Reagan nominated him to his seat on the Fourth Circuit of the U.S. Court of Appeals, where he has served faithfully for 28 years, including seven as Chief, Justice, Chief Judge. In addition to his first book on Virginia politics, later volumes include one giving a Supreme Court clerk's view of the world, one on the Supreme Court and school integration, and one on the dangers of American unity of ethnic separatism. Now he has published another called Cosmic Constitutional Theory with the intriguing subtitle, While Americans Are Losing Their Inalienable Right to Self-Government. He doesn't shy away from big topics, does he? Please join me in welcoming Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson, who will speak to us about cosmic constitutional theory, why Americans are losing their inalienable right to self-governance. Jay? Todd, thank you so much for the warm and kind introduction and thank you also I'm sure on behalf of the citizens of Richmond who enjoy along with me uh, the marvelous editorial page of the Richmond Times Dispatch. It's a, a pleasure to, to read and I always go away from it learning something I did not know before. Uh, it's a pleasure to see so many people who um, brave the, the rain and um, I want to say uh, what, a, what a particular joy it is to have my distinguished colleague, Judge Roger Gregory, um, here with us today. We've served on the court for well over a decade, um, and I never fail to gain from his understanding of cases and his unfailing uh, gentlemanliness and, and warmth. And Speaker Howell, thank you for taking the time to come and to be with us today, and I appreciate very much as I'm sure all Virginians do your service to the Commonwealth. And I want to thank uh, Paul Levengood and Charlie Bryan for their leadership over so many years for the lecture in honor of my dad. And um, I just think that uh, the family could have thought of no more touching memorial and, and have it put in such capable hands as, as, as Paul and, and Charlie. I want to speak just a little bit today about the federal courts, um, and I've devoted my life to them, and I'm going to be a little bit critical, but I want you to understand that the larger context is this is sometimes criticism is, is, is spoken out of love, and I, I dearly love the federal courts, and working with my fellow judges, it's as fine a group of colleagues uh, 
and find a group of people as I could ever wish for. The um, federal courtrooms are, of course, open, and you can come in and hear a trial or argument anytime you want, but I, it would suit me to have, any, have even greater transparency. If you could come in and, and actually see our deliberations or the way in which my colleagues go about deciding the cases, I, I think you'd be pleased about how conscientious uh, the judicial branch of American government it really is. Um, we care intensely about these cases and trying to uh, do right the, by the people before us and trying to honor our oath of office and our commitment to the law. And um, I guess one of the things that makes me recognize how special the federal judiciary is is when I talk to groups visiting from abroad, I've talked to groups in the past several years from Afghanistan and Iraq and Bangladesh and India and Sri Lanka and many other places and they consist of um, students from those countries and other judges and professors and lawyers and they are dismayed sometimes because they live in, in countries where the, the court system is in some cases corrupt um, and in other cases, the judges really want to do the right thing, but they're subject to great intimidation um, from those in positions of power, worried that the warlords or whomever the reigning executive is is going to imprison them if they make unpopular decisions. And if they don't face intimidation from that score, then they, they face... Uh, terrorist actions from jihadists um, in the event that uh, one, one of the quickest ways to make a population fearful is to go after the judges. Um, and so when you talk to people from abroad and you speak, of to, them, speak to them about the American judicial system, um, they can hardly talk to you. I can't either without a lump in their throat and with tears in their eyes um, about how much they want a judiciary that is independent um, and demonstrates integrity and, and fearlessness. And this is one of the things they love about America and the, the federal courts are one of our prized assets in the eyes of millions and millions of people abroad. And I understand, too, every 4th of July, um, I, I talk at a naturalization ceremony at Monticello, and we have new citizens from over 70 countries being naturalized from really from every corner of the globe. Um, and then these new citizens come up and talk to you afterwards, they say that one of the reasons they wanted to become an American citizen is because of their trust in the impartiality and integrity of, of courts. And so um, it's, uh, it's sort of special to be part of this, this, uh, this system, and um, I, feel, I feel very blessed. I want to speak a little bit today about what 
judges should do, um, kind of things that judges shouldn't do. You know, we all have things in their lives that we know we should do. <laughs> we all have things in their lives that we know we shouldn't be doing. Um, and I've been through the years a great advocate of judicial restraint. And it's kind of funny because people come up to me and say, well, Jay, if you just exercise judicial restraint all the time, you're not going to have anything to do. He said, you just, you're trying to make it easy on yourself or something? And <laughs> let me assure you, that's not the case. We have plenty to do. Uh, litigation is just like the oceans. It's not in danger of drying up. <laughs> and um, there's, there's a lot to do. And if you look at a a long construction contract uh, that, that uh, runs on for 20 pages and you're trying to make sense of it, or you're trying to trace a chain of title. Um, that's complicated business, and maybe a lot of you haven't heard about something called the Code of Federal Regulations. If you haven't heard of the Code of Federal Regulations, count yourself blessed. This Code of Federal Regulations, each volume of it's about this thick, and it's small print, and it you know, goes into sections and subsections and sub-subsections. And I really think if we got all the volumes of the Code of Federal Regulations, I haven't tested it. I know it would go across the country. I think it might encircle the globe. It's an open question in my mind about whether it would stretch to the moon but there are a lot of regulations, and judges have to kind of sort those things out. So we have plenty to do. There are lots of things, lots of ways of looking at the Constitution. And one of the ways that I've always thought made sense to me was to look at the Constitution as a kind of scolding parent. I know that sounds, you know, like, well, come on, are you making it a great document sound way too domestic? Well, so be it. That's what it is. It's a scolding parent, and the Constitution wags a finger at government, and it says, don't do certain things. Um, uh, don't infringe free speech. Do not trespass upon the free exercise of religion. Do not conduct unreasonable searches and seizures. Do not deprive someone of their basic right to counsel. Do not discriminate on the basis of race. And the judiciary has a very important role in enforcing these clear injunctions, these clear do nots, um, because that's what the Constitution, I think, and the framers really intended us to do, to take the Constitution's do-nots uh, very seriously. Well, those are some of the things we should do. And then the question comes about, well, what, what should courts not be doing? And I want to tell you a little story here about how I came to write this book. It came one, one time my bedside table was just piled way up high with these constitutional theorists. 
these cosmic constitutional theorists, I call them. Uh, Robert Bork and Antonin Scalia and William Brennan and Richard Posner and academic theorists. I was so excited about reading them. Uh, they're such brilliant people. I, I wouldn't really want to match my IQ against theirs because these people are off the charts. They're so smart. And I wanted to understand them and try to make them accessible maybe to a larger group of the public. And my wife, Lassie, said to me, what are you doing with all these theories? Uh, you know, my friends would tell me, go, go read a good novel. Uh, go get the great Gatsby for Pete's sake and do something normal. Um, but I couldn't put them down. They, 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 were so, they were so brilliant. And they were just lighting up the legal skies. And then something happened. Then something happened. Because as brilliant as they were, the cosmic theorists seemed to me to suffer from a common blind spot. And that is that they were using their awesome powers of intellect to provide a respectable path for judges to be getting into things that they shouldn't be getting into. And you know, the other interesting thing is that this failing was true whether the theories were liberal or whether they were conservative. And um, one of the leading theories you may have heard about it was, is called living constitutionalism. And the great expositor of that theory was the liberal justice William J. Brennan, an absolutely wonderful man. I got to meet him and spend some time with him when I clerked for Justice Powell. He was like Fiorella LaGuardia. He could just chummy, chummy you up. And he was a man of infinite charm, which um, made him all the more effective. And here's this idea that living constitutionalism, that judges should update the Constitution and bring it in tune with the times. Well, what was happening was that judges were taking these very vague constitutional phrases like due process and equal protections, and they were reading into them whatever they wanted to read into them. And this was all in the name of updating the Constitution. And the judges thought that, you know, they were going to give the Constitution a very enlightened contemporary gloss. Well, of course, what's enlightened and what's sufficiently modern is subject to a great deal of difference depending on the eyes of the beholder. And um, the framers seem to me to have left it to the people and to the legislative branch, by and large, to do the updating because the people themselves and, and representative government seem to kind of have their pulse on things sometimes a little bit more than those of us who are judges because, honest to goodness, we lead a pretty, by, by necessity, we lead a sort of a pretty cloistered and monastic life. We don't get to see and hear across the broad range of public opinion uh, that a legislator does.
So that didn't seem to work. And then uh, along came Robert Bork with his idea of originalism. Judge Bork could not be more different from Justice Brennan. Uh, he was as, as serious and taciturn as Justice Brennan was gregarious. And he wanted, in interpreting the Constitution, he, should, he said, we shouldn't look at it in terms of infusing our contemporary values into it. We should look at what the framers thought. Let's go back in town. Let's go back in time. Let's go back to the 1787 Constitutional Convention and the subsequent ratifying conventions of the several states. Well, there's a problem with that, which you can readily guess, and that is sometimes the best records weren't kept of the uh, Constitutional Convention in 1787. We know what the end product is, but it's very generally expressed. We don't really want, we don't really know a whole lot about what went on in Independence Hall in Philadelphia in 1787, it's hard to understand what the original meaning of the constitutional phrases sometimes is. I mean, sometimes the framers didn't even think about the problems we are confronting today. You can't expect them to have thought about it, particularly since it would have, that would have made them even remarkably clairvoyant and then than they were. It'll be looking well over 200 years into the future and guess what we were grappling with. Um, and so sometimes you're, you're overwhelmed when you look with original intent with conflicting evidence that goes every which way and other times you have very little evidence at all about what the framers thought. And so what was happening was <laughs> this pretended to be an objective theory to rein in judges but the judges were exploiting all the ambiguity and scarcity and original intent, and they were picking a side that coincidentally happened to accord with some of their philosophical and ideological beliefs. And we were getting the same 5-4 splits with this theory of original intent that we were getting with this theory of living constitutionalism. So I went through these different theories and, and they were all leading in the same way, which was a greater and greater expansion of judicial authority um, at the expense of legislative and executive authority, which were supposed to be the politically accountable branches. And they moved from enforcing, the judges in, in the course of doing this were moving from enforcing the Constitution's do not, because the do nots gave the judges pretty clear legal instructions. They were moving from enforcing the Constitution's negatives into putting brakes on the positive entrustments of authority to the legislative and executive branch. And when you move from enforcing the Constitution's do-nots to putting brakes on the positive enumerations that the, the, the framers gave to Congress, you're moving into a vague, legal, never-never land. It's like we'd be crossing a stream. If you cross a stream, you want to know where your foot's going to be, and you want to have sure footing. 
But in trying to put brakes on these positive powers, we're stepping on slippery, mossy stones. Now, this isn't all a matter of just a theoretical interpretation because you have these subjects, uh, and we can list them, um, abortion and firearms regulation and zoning regulation and same-sex marriage and health care reform and counterterrorism strategy and millennial presidential elections. And so it's one thing after another that these theorists have led us into. I want to speak just a little bit to you about a subject that I know is on your minds. And you may disagree strongly with me about it. I don't know. But I think it's a way to illustrate in a very concrete way what I'm talking about. And that is uh, the recent health care decision from the Supreme Court, which you remember was 5-4. Now, a lot of people don't like that law. And I understand it. And maybe it's a bad law. But maybe it's a good law. People are going to disagree about that. But whether it's a good law or whether it's a bad law is a really different question from whether it's constitutional. Now, as I say, the court upheld that law the, in the Affordable Care Act decision by a paper-thin five to four margin. Now, came under a great deal of criticism for its decision. But let's look at it this way. Congress has to have authority to regulate national markets. And I'm not sure it's unconstitutional to say for Congress to have said, look, we're all going to need health care at some point in our lives. And the individual mandate is a way Congress sought to have people assume some responsibility for that. Now, whether Congress made the right judgment or whether you made, it made the wrong judgment, I don't know. You can look at it in terms of, of the healthcare market as a whole. You can look at it in terms of the individual mandate in particular. But it would have been very difficult to have taken Congress's power, which are at their height in regulating the national economy, and said, constitutionally, you've gone too far. If the bill has problems, and any bill that big will have plenty of problems, I think the political process should have been left, and should be left as it now is, to revise and amend it. Suppose the court had struck down that law. It would have struck down one of the most politically sensitive measures in decades. 
by a 5-4 margin in the middle, right in the middle of a presidential election year. Again, I'm not trying to make a case for that health care law, but I'm saying that by sustaining it, we did not politicize the court. We did not hurl it into the middle of a presidential election. We did not make judges look partisan. And the court, by sustaining the law, began the long task of making itself an institution that transcended politics. Now, judges have political backgrounds. Uh, I ran for Congress when I was 25. Um, I uh, um, was asked the day afterwards, um, how did I feel about the thumping I received? <laughs> and uh, I said, well, I thought I got a mandate. <laughs> and the television reporter, bless him, um, said, um, a mandate? I said, yeah, a mandate to return to law school. <laughs> a lot of judges have political backgrounds, and it's a good preparation, I tell you, because it it lets you know how legislation is made and it, it teaches you the value of trust and of sticking to your, to your commitments. But if there's any one thing that binds judges is that whether we were in Republican politics or whether we were in, a Demo in Democratic politics, and those were great years for many of us before going on the bench. But when we go on the bench, we take the veil. And we know we've made a choice and that choice is to leave partisan politics behind and to do our best to have the, the court system transcend it. So the Chief Justice has taken an awful lot of criticism for his vote, and one can legitimately criticize the rationale of the opinion. But I just want to say, I think it was a courageous vote on his part, I think it was correct. And it, it reinforced the notion that law and politics are different callings. And it made us seem more like a judicial branch and less like a political branch. And the Chief Justice, with that vote, gave us no small gift. Institutions are very different, and a society cannot afford to be governed entirely by a legislative institution or entirely by a judicial institution. Given the stakes involved in our legislative debates, they're going to be rowdy. No one supposes that our disagreements are going to be dainty. Uh, democracy is going to be in gridlock some of the time, it's going to be messy sometimes, and it's not going to be altogether sober. Courts are very different. We're not organs of popular change. Our pendulum doesn't swing back and forth rapidly. 
We're the stabilizers in society, at least I think we should be. Uh, we may seem a bit stuffy. We may seem to put too much of an emphasis on decorum. That's the way it should be. When you step into a courtroom, it's a solemn place. And we need all kinds, all kinds of institutions for a society to, to flourish. And I want to say to you why it is so important that judges not involve themselves in these volatile issues and in these highly flammable issues that Todd just ticked off for you and the, that I've just gone through. And it all has to do with the nature of law and what, what you should expect from us. Politics goes into shaping law, and it, the legislature gives judges a set of general principles and a text which, which we have to apply to the very best of our ability. But when you come into court, those general statements are part of, they're the framework in which the judges work. But we're applying those general statements in the most personal way you can imagine. We're deciding whether someone spends the rest of their lives in jail. We're deciding whether somebody's business goes under or how somebody works through a bankruptcy proceeding, whether somebody gets a pension or not. We're entrusted with uh, safeguarding the public interest as it is expressed through law. Um, really the lives and, and fortunes and well-being of individual citizens are before us in that court. And you cannot afford to have those people whose lives are impacted so individually and so directly harboring a belief, of, however distant, that these people are really partisan, that they are driven by agendas. If somebody's going to affect your lives that deeply, life that deeply, you need to know that they're coming at it straight. And that's why, that's one reason why we need to enforce those do nots but not to get into all this other stuff where the legal sanction is so much less clear. So my book, I think, is a, it's, a, it's a little story about the best and the brightest and the pitfalls that can even attend um, the best and the brightest minds. Sometimes the best and the brightest minds, they don't have all the answers for us. That's kind of the conclusion I, I came to in this, in this book, and, and I'm concerned if we keep going down the road enmeshing ourselves in these very controversial political issues that we're going to look up one day and we're going to say, well, you know, we're no different from the rest, and we should be different, and it's not a distinctiveness that you should ever relinquish. It's wonderful to be in, in Richmond here. Um, I was raised here. Um, my family goes many generations back. Uh, I spent my adult life 
in the Commonwealth and so many different areas of it. Uh, and uh, doing, doing so many things and Virginia is just home to me and that's the most beautiful thing I can say. The, most, the only thing that's sweeter than home sweet home is end road work. And those, those are the only three, only three words I know. But I, lo I love this Commonwealth. Uh, it's just that simple. We're all lucky to be members of such a great state. And uh, the history of Virginia is so rich and it's so fascinating. And we're just lucky to have the Virginia Historical Society, uh, the kind of leadership that it's enjoyed over the years. And VHS really is the envy of distinguished historians and citizens around the whole country. And that's why it's such a special pleasure to, to, to be with you and to share this luncheon hour with you today. I thank you. a view on whether or not constitutions should be rewritten every so often, every generation? Perhaps Thomas Jefferson thought that. Um, I guess that question comes up in connection with a constitutional convention. Um, I would not be in favor of, of rewriting it. I, I think that the uh, there is an amendment process. It's difficult to be, to be sure, but uh, I think we have a document in our present constitution that is the envy of the entire world. And that constitution is um, people like James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and the writers of the uh, Federalist Papers conceived it uh, is a document of great genius. And it, along with our capitalist system, has given us well over 200 years of an extraordinary national history. And um, it really is the envy of the world, and many, many other constitutions are, are patterned after it. I was recently as an interview, and I, giving an interview, and I, I, I said, um, I know that... Uh, I get the same lump in my throat when I, it, this is corny, I know, but I get the same lump in my throat when I read the Constitution as I do when I sing America the Beautiful or recite the Pledge of Allegiance. That's how much I want to, that's how much I love it. And I think the Constitution has given us um, ways to grow as a nation. And it has a certain looseness and flexibility to it that, didn't try to fasten us into one way of doing things for all times, and it allowed our democratic system a way to progress. And um, so this is, this is one of the, the things that makes America a great nation. It's one of our true contributions to political theory and, 
you know, just as some nations would be known for extraordinary art or cultural contributions, uh, we're known for that and our extraordinary political contributions, and our Constitution is right at the center of it all. Judge? Should I turn it off? <laughs> Judge, we appreciate you being here, but and I'm a great believer in judicial restraint, but there are some cases that I cannot imagine we ever uh, would have uh, passed by state legislatures. It had to be done by a court. Uh, Gideon, Miranda, Baker versus Carr. Baker versus Carr, uh, equal protection under the law was violated state by state for years. Uh, are those not good cases where activism was good? It's a wonderful question. And um, I think what I, I tried to get at um, earlier by saying that judges do have a real role here and our role is in enforcing what I tried to say with the Constitution's um, do nots. And let's take one of the cases that you mentioned, um, which was um, the, the Gideon case. Um, we came late to it, but that's right at the heart of the Sixth Amendment, because the Sixth Amendment says you should have a right to counsel for your defense. And so, as a result of that, I think the court had a very clear mandate, and the court did absolutely the right thing. I think the same thing is true with respect to Brown v. Board of Education. Um, if that equal, prote equal protection clause means anything, it means you do not discriminate on the basis of race. And we fought a civil war over that principle. And I don't begrudge, and I think the judges did exactly the right thing um, in uh, taking that core command of the Equal Protection Clause seriously. So, yes, there absolutely are cases where I think the constitutional command is, is pretty much crystal clear. These areas that I'm talking about are much, in my judgment, fuzzier. One can um, agree or disagree with something, but I, I think that the legal underpinning of a case like Gideon and Brown on the one hand and Roe v. Wade on the other hand, it's very different. It's very different. On the one, you have language that provides um, a basic foundation of support, and I think the other, that legal sanction is much more difficult to, to come by. But your question is a, is a wonderful one because it's not an all or nothing proposition. And where the Constitution has a clear prohibition and a clear do not, then judges have an equally clear obligation to enforce it. Your Honor, thank you very much for being here today. I, I wanted to ask you, since your, your book seems to be about judicial restraint, what kinds of, uh, of approaches a court can take to limit the application of judicial review, which is not anywhere in the Constitution, but which has seemed to mushroom in the uh, latter half of the 20th century and in the 21st century? Thank you. Well, 
there's a question, a, a, another good question about how do we go about achieving um, judicial restraint. And first of all, we, we certainly don't want to abolish judicial review that goes way back as far as Marbury versus Madison. Um, and that's a sacred principle. Now, Congress has from time to time um, uh, thought about limiting the jurisdiction of the federal courts to hear certain kinds of to hear certain kinds of cases. Um, there have been other proposals to limit judges' life tenure. Um, there have been further proposals to um, uh, have judges subject to some sort of periodic election, um, all in the name of that these, these sorts of measures would help r judges withdraw from the political arena. Um, there's a question, I think, of throwing the baby out with the bath here, um, because if you begin to go too far in trying to limit judicial power by restricting the court's jurisdiction or by subjecting judges, federal judges, to periodic re-elections or by having them come before Congress uh, for confirmation every five or six years. These proposals bubble up from time to time. But as I tried to indicate, the nature of the federal judiciary is, yes, I think we've gone too far, but the institution itself is a priceless gift. And so you don't want to, um, you don't want to, to tamper with it. Um, one of the ways in which I hope some progress can be made on this area is that so, when, when one controversial decision comes down, one side is burned. And then when another controversial decision comes down, the other side is burned. And eventually, after you've been burned so many times, um, maybe the thought will occur that when we confirm judges and when we set forth our expectations for judges and when the public speaks about the role of judges, that we will begin to take uh, judicial restraint seriously. I'm afraid that really radical measures will destroy the judiciary as we know it today. But at the same time, if Congress doesn't regard this as a serious matter and the public doesn't regard judicial restraint as a serious matter, um, we're going to find judges dipping into more and more things that they shouldn't be into. So there's got to be some kind of, 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 basic, of, of basic balance, but I don't think you want to injure the core of the institution itself. For a long time, judicial restraint was known as judicial self-restraint, and there's no reason why that can't be true again. We have a marvelous founding tradition in the federal judiciary, and it's exemplified by people like Louis Brandeis and Oliver Wendell Holmes and John Marshall Harlan and Felix Frankfurter, and they were great judges, and they practiced judicial self-restraint. They didn't need Congress wrapping their knuckles. They knew themselves the limits of their knowledge. And it's, it's a wonderful thing when, a, when someone knows the limits of what they know. And the man for whom I clerked, uh, Lewis Powell, simply had an innate sense of humility about him. 
And that's the thing we need to get back to. We need to get back to appointing more Lewis Powells and more John Harlins and more Oliver Wendell Holmes who were, were great people precisely because they had a sense of hum humility and modesty at the core of their beings. And I can tell you working for two years with Justice Powell um, as the kind of person he, he was and he ought to be held up as a model of the kind of people we want on the federal bench. Judge Wilkinson, I would like to ask about your opinion about the Citizens United decision, uh, corporations as people, and the movement to amend the Constitution that some propose in response to that. The, um, it's a, it's a, it's a very tough case, and um, because on the one hand you f you find limitations on campaign finance um, restrictions which are enacted by Congress itself. And so um, Congress has to enjoy a certain amount of leeway in this area. But before one comes down too hard on the court, um, it's important to recognize that um, there is a danger in campaign finance restrictions going too far. Uh, because what you really are talking about is you're talking about political speech, not some kind of other speech, but political speech which resides at the very core of our, of our democratic order. Now, over the past 25 years, um, campaign finance restrictions have grown more and more complicated. I don't know whether the book of campaign finance restrictions is going to rival the Internal Revenue Code in prolixity, but it's getting more and more complex. And um, uh, campaigns are having to hire more and more lawyers um, just to understand the law which surrounds it. And um, there's, a, there's a danger, I think, of, of it's, it's difficult enough. So people say, well, you, if you uh, the Citizens United decision shut the little person out by allowing corporations and unions to um, uh, engage in independent expenditures, but they didn't, and that, that drowns out small voices. Is that true? I'm not sure, because the internet and the blogs and talk radio and all the rest have made speech more democratic than it was 25 or, th or 30 years ago. But there's a danger in having the, ca the campaign finance code become too complicated. Not only does it make elections more ex expensive to, um, to run, but many of these campaign finance restrictions are aimed at protecting incumbent office holders by, make it, by making it more difficult for challengers to take them on. And um, one of the most controversial provisions was, was something that prohibited uh, in the last 30 days before an election um, certain kinds of attack ads. Well, you can term them pejoratively attack ads, but our whole democracy depends upon um, a, a vigorous exchange of differing points of view. 
And the time when people are paying the closest attention to that exchange is right before the, uh, before the election. So what I would suggest to you is before just jumping in and saying, oh, you know, how, how could the court possibly do such a thing? Understand the dangers of a campaign finance code that, that, that is for lawyers only uh, and, and which is going to be legally prolix and difficult to understand. Um, understand the, the, the dangers that incumbents can use this as a matter of self-protection because they're the ones that pass those laws. Um, and you, in, in my judgment, a lot of campaign finance restrictions are are perfectly valid and necessary to preserve the integrity of the political process. But if you go too far, you begin to undermine the integrity of the political process and, and, and shut off the uh, vigor of, of a political exchange. If free speech is worth anything, it's in the political arena when it's robust and tough and, and, and joins the issue and, and just goes at it. Um, when you look at it, the elections, one of the interesting things about looking back into American history is that, my golly, the election in, of, of 1800 and some of those early 19th century elections, honestly, they make our democracy and our democratic dialogue today look like child's play. I mean, I know, the, I know that the gentleman of the early, 18th, or the early 19th century had a high code of personal honor, but mixed in with that high code of personal honor was an astonishing amount of invective and vitriol. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so we, we're, we're in no danger of having our political speech uh, get too rough. Maybe it's, it's, maybe it's too partisan now. I think there's a lot. I wish there were more civility in it. But I... I don't think the answer is to overregulate the area because it just lies so much at the core of, of the citizens' right to be informed and the citizens' right to vote. Um, Judge, thanks for coming here. I've enjoyed your um, presentation. I may have missed something, so I want you to reconcile what I think I heard as a contradiction. In the beginning, you mentioned how you know foreigners and newly um, um, made citizens respect and they admire the independence of our judiciary, and rightly so. But then later when you mentioned, when you brought up the Health Care Act decision by the Supreme Court, you seem to indicate that one of the attributes of the final decision was that it didn't cause any political tensions or chaos or whatever, however you want to phrase that, political turmoil in the middle of a presidential election. If the judiciary is independent, why should political ramifications have anything to do with their decision, and why should that be considered good or bad or indifferent? I mean, it should be indifferent, actually. Because there's a big difference, I think, in um, uh, overturning a particular piece of legislation and, de and declining to do so in respecting the result that's reached after uh, extensive political debate. And I happen to believe that if you take a piece of legislation that's been exhaustively debated um, and a court overturns that product of the democratic process, that seems to me a vastly more aggressive step than allowing it to stand. And so uh, 
I, I think that there's um, really quite a difference in the two situations you posit, and um, it, um, it's, it, it seems to me particularly important um, that the court preserve its institutional capital, and if you ask yourself to both take down that health care law after really two years of intense debate in Congress and to do so in a vote where the five justices who would have lined up to kill the legislation were on the conservative side of the fence and the five justices who voted to sustain the legislation were on the liberal side of the fence. It just begins to look like the conservative justices have it in for the administration or what have you. Those appearances are simply not good. And in the long run, I think they're very corrosive to the court's standing. It seems to me it's important for justices occasionally to vote against what the public might perceive as their own political interests because they believe they are compelled to do so by law. Now, if there had been a stronger argument for uh, in law, if there had been a clear instruction in law for striking down a piece of legislation, I can, I can understand that. I guess what the point I'm trying to make is that that debate over the health care decision, you, it, it, it seemed to me that after reading and, and listening to the arguments, three days of arguments, that um, the legal case just was not made.